Welcome to Planning Unplugged, a podcast series from planning lawyers at Womble Bond Dickinson. We operate in an ever-changing world of law and policy, so we're here to provide you with the latest insight and a point of view like no other. Hi everybody, my name is Kate Ashworth. I'm back today with James Clark to talk a bit more about biodiversity net gain. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact on landowners and what people with land suitable for biodiversity net gain might want to think about. So this is our third in the series and the the final one in this series on biodiversity net gain. So turning to our speakers. Hi, James. Hi there, Kate. And then also today, we have a surprise guest, um, Andrew Farkerson, a partner in our agriculture team who has been advising clients on creating and selling biodiversity net gain units from a lands perspective. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Kate. Hi, James. As Kate says, I'm a partner in our agriculture farms and estates team, and I specialise in advising landowners in relation to all kinds of development projects, both residential and commercial, but also in relation to biodiversity net gain projects and schemes. Great. Well, welcome to our podcast. Thank you both. And let's get started. We talked last time about what biodiversity net gain is and what developers need to be aware of. We've also looked at local planning authorities, but why do landowners need to know about biodiversity net gain? Well, I think as as you say, Kate, last time we looked at it from a developer perspective and there is the hierarchy that the developers have to work through. So can they deliver it on site? And if they can't deliver it on site or can't deliver all of it on site, then they can look at off-site solutions. And I think that's the point at which landowners can potentially become involved in this, this whole BNG process. So the government is has laid the groundwork really to create a market in biodiversity net gain. And we see the framework of it now, but of course, the implementation of it and how it's going to play out in practice is yet to come. So I think today we'll be looking at sort of about how this is going to work and in practice, perhaps, and it will be a constraint on land. But there is, although there's a constraint, there is the benefit for landowners, which is that there is something that they can buy and sell and is possibly a good opportunity for them in diversifying their land or generating an income stream from that land that wasn't available to them before. Great. So if a landowner thinks they might have land that could be used for providing off-site biodiversity net gain, what do you think the key things they need to do are? I suppose one of the first things is instructing an ecologist. So looking at what the baseline biodiversity value of that land is and its potential. So what could be done by way of habitat enhancements and what potentially could that land achieve in terms of its biodiversity value? Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? There are huge opportunities for landowners in this in this arena at the moment because developers just obviously have no real appetite for carrying out the habitat management themselves. They really want to effectively subcontract that to to landowners to create the habitat and to manage it going forward and then landowner gets paid by the developer for doing that work. The land could also be let to a wildlife trust and there's a potential source of further income there as a consequence of that. A lot of our clients are speaking to the Environment Bank at the moment too. They effectively act almost as a middleman. They take a farm business tenancy agreement from the landowner. Landowner gets paid a rent, a fixed rent, potentially reviewed during the term of that arrangement so that they have a source of income. They know what they're going to get paid. But it's the environment bank who ultimately sell the the units to the developer. 
that all said, the way that arrangement normally works is that there's a sublease back to the landowner and they get paid by the Environment Bank for carrying out the work on site. So it's a, almost a win-win from a landowner's perspective. I think it is a really interesting approach, isn't it? So how this will work and how landowners will grapple with it. And it does very much, as, as you say, Andrew, come back to that principle of due diligence. I think one of the things that I've seen, certainly with landowners talking about BNG, is whether or not different types of credits or, or other sort of payments can be stacked in addition to biodiversity net gain. And I think in principle, from the guidance, that is it is possible. But my understanding is that you can't, if you're already obliged to do something to obtain credits on something else, for example, carbon or for nutrient neutrality, you can't then obtain biodiversity. You can't sell that biodiversity units if you're already obliged to do it, but it can coexist in theory. Yeah, James, linked to that is uh, any land which is in a stewardship scheme or other environmental land management scheme. A landowner can't effectively get paid twice, or if they're getting paid for carrying out works under a stewardship scheme, they can't also then use that land for biodiversity net gain and get paid second time for doing effectively the same job on that land. An important thing for landowners to bear in mind too is if land is charged to a bank, so mortgage to a bank, when a scheme is entered into, a BNG scheme is entered into with a developer, you're going to have to get consent from the bank under the terms of the charge to that agreement. And a lot of banks at the moment, as I think has been talked about in earlier sessions, this is very much a, a new area for banks, something which they haven't really quite got their heads around. And so getting those consents is difficult, potentially time consuming. So that needs to be sort of borne in mind as part of the process. Landowners also need to think if land is in, they're held by them in their pension fund. Again, you've got to comply with the requirements of the pension fund too. It's not just simply going off and entering into an agreement with a developer for a, a BNG scheme. You've got to comply with the pension funds requirements as well. Just quickly, just a question for me, going back to the stacking point, for an example, if you had land and you were going to create nutrient neutrality credits by ceasing farming, for example, and you did that and then you could sell those credits, if you then on top of that created habitat on that land, which is different, but does create biodiversity net gain units, then that is possible because the two actions are mutually exclusive, but both create credits. But if you had to create habitat as part of the nutrient neutrality, then you couldn't count that as biodiversity net gain. Is, is that what we're saying? I think that's my understanding, Kate. I th I'm sure there will be cases that will test it and probably in practice where you draw the line, it may not be as on, on certain schemes, it may not be as, as distinct because I imagine some of these agreements were perhaps prepared and entered into for the creation of other credits before biodiversity net gain was thought of. So it would be interesting to see in practice whether these things do draw to very distinct and discrete sort of categories so, so that you can pass it up in that way. But my understanding is that that's right. As long as you're not doing what you've already obliged to do, you can't, as Andrew said, can't get paid twice, as it were. So back to what landowners also might need to think about. Are there any other things that affect land that landowners might want to be looking at, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. And one really important thing is a lot of land is sold or acquired subject to clawback or overage arrangements to a, a third party. And quite often the way that works is that it's linked to a restricted covenant limiting use of land to agriculture. So 
you've got to query where the sum of what's going to be done as part of BNG project actually constitutes agricultural use, whether there's a change of use required, whether planning permission for that change of use itself is going to be required, and therefore whether carrying out the BNG project triggers clawback or overage payments to a third party, which obviously could then have a, depending on what the level of that payment is, could have a significant impact on the money received by the landowner from the developer paying them to carry out the BNG project for them. And that's a really, really important one. Really just carrying out due diligence on the title. So checking at land registry, any covenants which affect the use of the land, any clawback or overage arrangements, as I've talked about, any easements which exist. So if there are rights over a parcel of land where there's already existing cabling or water pipes or things like that, those need to be be thought about to make sure that you're not going to interfere with any of the covenants which sit alongside those as part of carrying out the BNG work. Yeah, one of the things we were talking about earlier is statutory undertaker equipment. So for example, I mean, that might not always show up on the title. Most of the time people know it's there. Yeah, that existence of kit and the fact the company may need to go in and do repairs, you know, that's something that actually people do need to be thinking about. I think that's right. And because as we've talked about previously, the habitat enhancements need to be secured over the land through a Section 106 agreement or through a conservation covenant. And so I suppose all of the things that we've just been talking about comes back to what the landowner is potentially signing up to under those agreements and whether those things that already exist in the land might cause the landowner then to breach those covenants because, like you said, the statutory undertaker needs to come on onto the land to carry out certain works to reinstate certain repair or reinstate certain apparatus or equipment and in doing so destroys or, or damages severely the habitat that is secured under those agreements. One thing I've been thinking about is who decides whether a biodiversity net gain unit can be provided? Is it the local authority? I presume it has to be, in which case if they say it's fine, I guess it's fine. I don't think there's enough guidance on the point at, at the moment, Kate, because it's difficult, isn't it? Because some of these things may ne- a right may exist in theory, but never in practice, never be exercised during the 30 year period that the, the enhancements have to be secured for. So it might be that it technically exists, but the expectation on all of the parties is that it just never will be a problem in practice. But there might be other sorts of rights, like a right of way, which is much more potentially, you know, exercised much more frequently and will be much more relevant. But I, I've not seen anything in the guidance so far that would give or authorities are sort of an indication as to how to how to treat those things, what weight to give them in terms of deciding whether or not that's that's adequate in terms of a conservation covenant could be secured against certain, you know, lands subject to certain rights. And one of the things you touched on, Andrew, that I think we were talking about the other day is clawbacks and overages and agricultural restrictions. I think one of the other problems at the moment is is biodiversity net gain classed as agriculture? And again, I'm not sure if there's an answer to that. I don't think there is a simple answer to that. I mean, there are definitions of agriculture, but whether BNG works constitute agriculture really depends on a case-by-case basis as to exactly what you're doing on the land. If it's, for example, planting up a meadow, that seems to me to be pretty clearly agricultural. But if you're creating a pond with some trees around it and in a nice habitat for mammals and bird life, it query whether that is agriculture. So that's where you potentially fall foul of restricted covenants affecting the freehold title to the land and the also potentially fall foul of clawback and overage arrangements. Okay there's lots of issues to think about there lots and lots of things for landowners to have a look at but say that all goes to plan and we're working towards creating some biodiversity net gain units how are developers going to know that these units are available presumably they are registered how does that work? 
you're absolutely right. So once the legal agreement has been entered into, whether that's a Section 106 or a conservation covenant, the biodiversity units must be registered with Natural England. And there's a, a process and a fee to be paid to Natural England for registration. However, as we understand it, that register will contain, in terms of the publicly facing version of the register, will contain sort of very bare details of it, but no contact details for the owner of those units. So from a developer's perspective, something more will be needed in order to put the developer wishing to buy credits in touch with the landowners who own those credits or own those biodiversity units for sale, should I say. And so at the moment, in the absence of the register, I think definitely from my perspective, what we're seeing is private deals. So contacts and land agents getting in touch with each other as opposed to using a a register and, and using Section 106 as well through the local authority as opposed to conservation covenants. Yeah, I think that's right, Kate. I think that that's where professional networks, lawyers, surveyors in particular, really come into their own. There are obviously plenty of landowners who will be speaking to house builders and, and other developers on a regular basis, particularly those on the sort of urban fringe where residential development, for example, is regularly happening. And those sort of projects are sort of ones where landowners might be able to facilitate BNG works on some other land which they own maybe a bit further down the road from where the residential development's happening. But I think there are some, definitely some landowners who are attempting to go out there and and speak to developers direct. I'm not sure quite how successful that's being, but I think definitely using your surveyor, land agent, lawyer who will have useful contacts is probably good advice. I think that's absolutely right for, you know, landowners or other actions that they can be looking to do, as you say, as, as well as relying upon those professional networks to to make contact with developers is, is also actively looking to promote their land for inclusion in local nature recovery strategies, which various bodies, usually the county council in a, in a two-tier authority, are required to prepare. And the benefit to landowners of doing that is, is that there's a benefit when applying the metric, is that there's a strategic significance multiplier for land that is secured under a strategy. And essentially, you get more biodiversity units for from the same amount of habitat enhancements, if you like, than if you did it elsewhere. So I think there's good steps for landowners to take to be proactive. But it's this period, whilst this market is developing, I I think is challenging because that networks and infrastructure databases don't yet exist to sort of make this operate in the market as a market in the way that the perhaps government was foreseeing it will do. So I think it's a matter of time, hopefully, for this to bed in. I think we will get there. There's lots and lots of things for people to think about and try. It's just so new, isn't it? I think, you know, have this conversation in a year's time, be very different. I think that's right. And I think it's it'll be interesting to see how this works in terms of the pricing of biodiversity units, because we think we know that the statutory credits will sort of operate almost like as, as a cap to the price, I would think. But whereas if, you, if you're trying to charge more than the statutory credits, then I think the developer would just say, well, I'll just buy statutory credits then. But I think that um, if it's difficult for developers to know who has units for sale, then it makes you wonder how the market will operate in terms of setting the price for units and generating competition between unit providers. So we've got the land, we've got confirmation it's suitable for biodiversity net gain, and now we've got developers interested. What else is there to think about? Are there other things landowners need to be thinking about on top of all of all of the things we've already discussed? I think it goes back to what Andrew was saying at the beginning, which is if you're on the developer side of things, you want to outsource this, you want it to be someone else to have the responsibility, ideally for creating the habitat enhancements, but certainly for their management and maintenance over the 30-year period. And I think that is something that landowners do need to think about, is are they willing to deal with that management and maintenance themselves, or are they equally going to want to try and pass that down the line? Uh, For example, as Andrew said, there might be wildlife trusts or other bodies that they potentially could lease land to. 
to carry out that function. It might align with the objectives of that body. I think that's right. I think one thing landowners also need to be wary of, as you, you touched on there, James, is that the 30-year period for BNG is a very long time. What else could come along in that time scale, which could potentially be a more valuable source of income to a landowner? where they may want to use land which they've already committed to using for BNG they may want to use it at some point during that time for some other purpose but they can't if they've entered it into a BNG scheme or entered into a BNG scheme with the developer or council. I think another thing which landowners need to think about as well is how payments to be made are to be made to them under a BNG arrangement with the developer. We're seeing a mixture of those at the moment in some cases a lump sum payable up front in some cases paid in installments in some cases paid on an annual basis almost like a rent uh, under a lease or tenancy arrangement. Those are all fine but in some cases you're talking about quite significant sums of money and landowners need to think about how they can secure those payments bearing in mind if they if it's paid in installments or on an annual basis we need potentially security for them to be paid over the the full 30-year life of the scheme so those are those are really important things to think about I think that's right. And also looking at the 30-year requirement, I mean, there also needs to be thought given to any force majeure type events, storms, floods and the like that might cause serious damage to the enhancements and what the landowner's responsibilities would be in, in, in that scenario, what in terms of reinstatement of the enhancements. And particularly, it'll be interesting to see what practice develops around the timing of that. So if you have a habitat that might take a good number of years to establish and to be at its sort of optimal condition, if you have that force majeure type event in year 29 of the 30-year period, do those reinstatement provisions apply in the same way? Or is there there some other mechanism that can be considered in that scenario? So I think there's quite a lot to think about and potentially for landowners that retain that management and maintenance responsibility themselves, quite a lot of risk that they could be signing up to absolutely similarly james if you are committing to establish a uh, bng habitat for a 30-year period the sort of force majeure events you talked about storms and floods inevitably are going to happen at some point during that period to what extent does the landowner have to try and take steps to mitigate the damage caused by those to try and reduce any impact on the on the habitat that's being created uh, as well as obviously making it good after it's been damaged by those sort of events i think that's a particularly problematic area and one that's not really been thought through particularly bearing in mind some of the schemes entail at the moment i talked earlier about creation of a, a pond and, and woodland area around it or something like that clearly if there's a storm or flood event those could be pretty seriously damaged and potentially as you say come year 29 is it really practical or sensible for a landowner to be expected to then put all of that right they're not going to be able to suddenly grow trees in in the space of a a one-year period of any significance so i think that's definitely an area which hasn't really been thought about where we could probably do the bit of bit of guidance and clarification from councils it's interesting as well isn't it because this is as a concept bng is very much in its infancy it'll be quite interesting to see what other products start to develop around it as as you say the banks are yet to fully perhaps get their heads around the concept of conservation covenants and biodiversity net gain but you do wonder whether like for the issues that we've just talked about the insurance industry may be looking at certain types of products that will sit alongside the delivery of biodiversity net gain and, and some of the risks that we've just talked about and how that might play out over the longer period i mean in terms of that that might even be something that there's a product available for the statutory undertaker equipment like we talked about things that may never need to be disturbed but that could be maybe you could insure against an event like that or there's definitely a lot of I think different angles and products that could be created to help people providing these habitats. 
So that was a really, really good discussion. I think there's an awful lot to think about and I think we probably could have carried on for quite a lot longer, but I am going to wrap this up. So as we've been doing with our last two podcasts, can you give me top three takeaways for landowners on biodiversity net gain to wrap up this podcast? Thanks, Kate. I think for my part, doing due diligence on the site at the outset is absolutely key, both to check it's physically and, if you like, environmentally suitable, but also to check title, what's on the on there at the land registry, anything which could impact on using the land for a BNG scheme, making sure there are no, no nasties which are going to cause a problem for you on that is definitely a really, really important thing to do. I think following on from that, for me, it'll be getting the right team of advisors in place. I mean, we've talked about a lot of different issues and, and there is a lot to cover, but I think, you know, getting getting really good streamlined legal advice, help from a surveyor, particularly negotiating commercial terms for selling these units, advice from an ecologist and potentially tax advice as well. But if you can get a core team, I think that should, should cover everything off that we've talked about. And I think from my part, I would say probably, uh, well, don't spend it all at once. Uh, if, you, if you're a landowner that's got responsibility for managing and maintaining the land over the full 30-year period, and if, as we've talked about earlier, if that payment comes in by way of a lump sum, you do need to think about those management and, and maintenance responsibilities over the full term that the habitat enhancements are required to be in place and how you deal with, like we talked about, those force majeure type events if they occur and, and if those things place obligations upon you. Great. Well, thank you both very much. And I hope you enjoyed our third podcast on biodiversity net gain bye everybody thanks very much bye bye thanks bye